Welcome to Enacting the Kingdom, a podcast about liturgical worship. My name is Father Yuri Gladio, and I'm an Orthodox Christian priest with a lifelong desire to keep learning. I'm joined by my teacher and friend, Father Jeffrey Reddy. Father Jeffrey holds a doctorate in liturgical theology and is the co-director of the Orthodox School of Theology at the University of Toronto. Well, we're back for another recording of Enacting the Kingdom. Welcome, Father Jeffrey. We are on the topic of Enacting the Kingdom. So the title episode of our title show, we are talking about how the Great Litany affects our life outside of church. And this one, I think, seems to work pretty well in the sense of we're literally praying for lots of things that are outside the church and and how it affects that. That's exactly right. I mean, we've spoken before that, uh, you know, these aren't, in the words of the petitions, aren't prayers themselves. They're exhortations to do something, uh, specifically to pray for this long list of of things, which encompass, you know, almost all of creation in in various categories and and so forth. And so, by by its very nature, this litany is a kind of agenda of sorts, um, a kind of setting out of tasks, responsibilities, priorities, and, you know, properly received, understood, and acted upon, you know, it gives all of us plenty to get on with, you know, both within the scope of the service itself, where we are going to pray, Lord have mercy in these, you know, for these different things, but then also extending that outside of of the liturgy into our lives and still being mindful of all of these considerations. We've talked a lot about the concept of peace from the scriptures. So in Hebrew, um, shalom, and in Greek, irini, in English, peace. And this is the great litany here is often called the litany of peace. So we talked a lot about peace and how peace plays a role in our regular day-to-day lives. And I think it would be worth to touch on it again. I think we touched on it twice already in a major way. Um, but we like to do three things three times in the Orthodox Church. So let's maybe go over peace again. Um, we begin the first three petitions with in peace, for the peace and for the peace. Yeah, this is the single big item here. It's the one takeaway that we should have. We're praying that this peace, irini, the shalom, that give it its richest kind of biblical context, that this shalom, which comes from above, comes from God, it can only come from God, that that be extended to us, uh, to our souls, you know, so sort of an, an internal peace that comes from that, that it be extended to the church, you know, specifically. So the community that has gathered should be in this shalom and experience this shalom and live this shalom. And then from that, I mean, in this great agenda setting way to say that we are then going to take what came from above, came within us and amongst us, and we're now going to extend that to the whole world, that there's not one part of the world around us that this shalom should not be touching. And as I say, this gives us a kind of endless amount uh, to 
get on with. You know, if, if we really take that seriously and we don't think of our coming into a period of worship as a sort of escape from something, an escape from the world. Well, here we're finding comfort and peace and, and here we're, you know, we're, we're away from all the tribulations and concerns of the world. And, you know, we may have to go back out there, but, but we'll come here again, you know, and almost like kind of living from, from peaceful moment in church to, to another peaceful moment. Well, no, that's not what this agenda says. The agenda says from above to us, within us and amongst us, and then out into the world in all of these different categories, which touch social, political, economic, you know, physical, you know, uh, uh, you know, medical you know concerns all the different aspects of, of our of our human life are are encompassed into this concept of shalom that we are to extend to the world when people nowadays talk about peace there's this association i think with justice as well and especially with the movement starting in the 60s we can hear john lennon singing give peace a chance right and there's this call to our civil authorities to take on a posture of peace and, and anti-war and in the great litany the sixth petition we pray for the civil authorities by name right so in canada we we pray for the queen queen elizabeth in the United States, you would, well, you would pay for the president. I don't know if you would actually name. Um, name everyone them, knows who he is. <laughs> everyone knows. But but there there can be tension, I, I know of. Uh, and, and sometimes there includes petitions for the armed forces as well, that we're praying for the armed forces. And this has been a conversation I've had with many people, especially um, Mennonites with whom I have a, a lot of friends, that there is this separateness that Mennonites uh, and some Christians want away from kind of the civil authorities and worldly power. So may, I think talking about why we pray for civil authorities would be an important aspect here. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, you know, there's a great deal of you know, sympathy that we could have for for those who don't want to necessarily kind of soil themselves in the dirty world of politics it's it's a, it can often be a uh, quite a sordid kind of uh, of world you know democracy that we we live in is great except for all the ways that it's not um so you know one can be quite sympathetic with the point of view that says in order to have justice, in order to have righteousness, um, you can't actually, you know, kind of get down and dirty in the in the world of politics and authorities and, and and so forth. And of course, there's that larger tension and most important tension from all of the scriptures, which is that I mean, the fundamental narrative of the scriptures is that God is to become our king, our authority. You know, so that all of the the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever, it says in uh, the book of Revelation, the seventh angel, I believe it is, who, who kind of announces that. And you can't speak those words without immediately resonating with the, you know, Handel's Messiah and the Hallelujah Chorus, where that is just, it's sung in a spine-tingling, you know, kind of way. So all authority is disappearing from this world. The only authority that matters is that God in Jesus Christ has become king, enthroned on the cross, and, and brought into that place of authority of heaven and earth coming together in his ascension, sending his Holy Spirit to empower us as citizens of this new kingdom. That's where authority lies for, for the Christian. But at the same time, we have this, you know, 
uh, imperative, really, this agenda that we are to bring the shalom of God that will come from his reign, that will come from his being king, but to bring that to every aspect of the world. You know, and that's not the world in the abstract and say, oh, you know, God loves everyone or God loves the world. It's the concrete real specific things that that we encounter and that includes our politicians it includes our you know members of the armed forces it includes you know people you know working in homeless shelters it includes people working in you know banks and investment companies and and the whole world is to be encompassed into that and so there must be a way in which we pray for work with to transform all the institutions and people you know of of this world it's not to say we lend them ultimate credence or authority. You know, there is a clear, you know, uh, line here, which is that no authority exists without, you know, God's permission, um, or at least tolerance, you know, at, at this stage. And that all of that is ultimately to work towards the same goal, the same end of, of God's shalom, which will not be uh, overcome. You know, that will, that, that final victory has been won, but we have all of the, the work yet in our own lives, in our own situations, you know, to get there. So, uh, so whilst, you know, it's true that we stand a little bit aloof and apart from, you know, the kind of sordid activities that, uh, you know, civil authorities might, might be up to, we nevertheless have to engage with the, the things that they're doing with, with the social, political, economic, and other, you know, issues, because that shalom has to be all encompassing, you know, and I would hope that in saying something like that, even our Mennonite friends would, would say, yeah, you know, we, we believe that, you know, right back to the Psalms, this shalom and righteousness kiss each other, it says in Psalm 84, this beautiful image of the kissing of shalom and righteousness or justice. And this is a theme we find right through the, the scriptures. The prophets are all about not just saying, yes, you know, follow God, put your, your, your loyalty and trust and faith in God, but then do something in the marketplace. You know, we, we said before about the, even the weights, the balance scales in the marketplace are, are said to be in shalom, you know, that very, the instrument of commerce has to be made part of, uh, of this. So every aspect of the world has to be brought into this, this concept. And sometimes that means, yes, praying for, you know, things that maybe seem in opposition to God's shalom. But it's precisely to bring them into harmony with that, that we pray. You know, we pray that they too will experience this shalom and therefore be transformed as we hope we are being transformed through the worship of, of the church. I think an understanding of, I, I think people who have an aversion to praying for, let's say the armed forces or for the president or the, or the queen, have that aversion because institutional Christianity in the past has sometimes explicitly prayed for the victory of their own people over and against quote unquote barbarians. Well, yeah, I mean, we, we have imagined all kinds of false shalom, you know, and again, this is something we referred to before in the scriptures that, um, you know, that that's almost the worst thing that you can be doing. You know, it's one thing to be fighting against the peace of God and fighting against this well-being, this, this total flourishing of, of, of all of creation that God is working towards. But it's another to be doing that and calling what you're doing 
you know, shalom, which is where the prophets really come down hard on people. You know, you've called this shalom and yet it's not, you know. And so we have this tendency as human beings to sell ourselves short, you know, and to, and this happens, you know, when you conflate nations or governments or authorities of, of this world with you know, what that true authority is and so forth. I mean, there's that famous incident that is so badly misunderstood in, in the Gospels where, you know, the uh, Christ is shown uh, a coin, you know, and is asked about paying, you know, taxes and, and so forth. And he says, well, show me the coin, you know, whose, whose figure is on this, you know. And, um, and of course, the figure that's on that is of, Caesar, right? And Caesar, it is said, even on that very coin, is a kind of son of God, is, you know, he's shown, depicted on the coin as he is on arches and so forth, as the one who ascended, you know, to the heavens, the one who, who is the true Kyrios, the true Lord, and so forth. And so, you know, our Lord isn't sort of setting out a political you know, a, a, you know, a philosophy of separation of church and state, as a lot of people interpret that when he says, well, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, you know, and render unto God what is God's. He's really, you know, sarcastically remarking about, well, you better just give this back to him if this, you know, this belongs to this kind of, you know, person who claims to be divine, who claims all authority under uh, on heaven and earth. Because the reality is, what you should be questioning is where does your where does your authority uh, where where is the authority in your life and that should be God and which is why he turns around and says render unto God what is God's what is God's what's everything right how could you even begin to you know make that as some sort of political compromise or division constitutional division between church and state it's nothing of the sort he is completely relativizing. Caesar's authority, the real authority as all, I mean, this is the, the, the fundamental theme of the New Testament is that God has come in the Lord Jesus Christ to become Lord and King. And that is where, you know, we need to, to, to pay attention and to, to give all of our authority. It's not to say we don't care about the world. We care about the world in its entirety because we want that authority to extend to all. But as soon as you start to com to conflate or confuse, confound, worldly authority with that authority. And that can be, you know, in horrible, twisted dictatorships, or it can be in even the most glorious examples of, you know, Christian Byzantium or whatever. I mean, it's still a confounding of the two, in a, and it spiritually is dangerous whenever you do that. The only time, you know, authority, uh, political authority in this world is properly functioning is when it has actually aligned itself with the, the authority of God, of Christ as Kyrios, as Lord. And that, that rarely happens, but it's something we need to pray and work towards in all of our political engagement. I had a conversation one time with a Christian friend of mine who went to a Christian church, non-Orthodox Christian church, and we were talking about the concept of, in the Orthodox Church, that each local community is not an independent community, that it belongs to a larger body, and that its, its pastor isn't necessarily the presbyter who's been put there, but it's actually the bishop who has responsibility and is the sort of arch-pastor of that church community and has delegated authority to the presbyter to fill in his role when he can't be there. And that you cannot actually have the, a Eucharistic liturgy without the blessing of the bishop higher up, higher up the chain. 
And my Christian friend was very, very scandalized by this in that for his understanding, it was the local Christian community that got that, that should have the say in the be all and end all of anything to do with that community. And one of the things we pray in the great litany, the litany of peace, uh, you know, for our metropolitan, for our archbishop, for the honorable presbyterate, the diaconate in Christ, for all the clergy and the people. Uh, so uh, I think it would be good to hear your take on the context of us as individual Christian persons praying in a church, but also understanding our place in the larger structure of the Orthodox Church. Yeah, um, I mean, as we've emphasized, you know, the directionality of this shalom is that it comes from God. It comes from from on high. There's no other source of this. We can't invent it. There's no human philosophy. There's no, you know, psychological manipulation that will bring it about. There's no way we can engineer this ourselves. The the peace uh, comes from on high, and it comes principally through our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the one who is our peace. You know, as Saint Paul says, Christ, who is our peace. He Christ is the one who fully brings the life of God into this world and reconciles this world to God, brings heaven and earth, you know, together. So that's the fundamental spiritual reality, the theological reality of salvation that we we partake in. And of course, the that's not that's not the end in and of itself, because the end is that everything becomes reconciled in in Christ. And how does that happen? How does that get extended? Well, it is precisely through the local church community. That is, it's as it were, a kind of colony of the kingdom of God, right? We're not yet there. We're not yet fully, you know, in the the, the full revelation of the kingdom, uh, where it's obvious to everyone that Christ is all in all. Heaven and earth are joined together. The new heaven and the new earth. We are we're fully experiencing that reality. As it were, we're, we're the kind of colony, the the kind of vanguard of that kingdom. And so everything that the local church uh, represents should be a reflection of what the kingdom you know, to come is all about. It's why our liturgy is the way it is, right? It's not just arbitrarily set up. It's set up specifically to bring us into the reality of the age to come. St. Maximus says, you know, that after a certain point, the dismissal of the catechumens in the divine liturgy, we are in the age to come. We, you know, and we can, we, at that point, we get to remember things that haven't yet happened in the present age. Uh, and we commune as full participants in the age to come. Well, all of Orthodox worship, you know, has that character. We are, we are experiencing the life of the age to come, of the kingdom. And so the totality of relationships and of actions and of words and of decoration and of all the sensory elements of the liturgy reflect as it were, kind of like icons of, of the age to come. And that includes, as I say, the relationship that we have between one another, the fundamental stance of the bishop, you know, in his position, you're talking about praying for, for the, the hierarch, the bishop, the fundamental stance is the one where he has ascended into the Holy of Holies, into the altar, has turned and faced the people and says, peace be unto all, shalom, to the whole assembly. And we respond you know, and to your spirit. In other words, 
we are joined together in this moment. But that is the fundamental um, responsibility of the bishop is to is to to be in that place, right? And we are to be in right relationship with that. So if the bishop is there, that expressing to us the the peace that comes from on high, the peace of God the Father expressed through His Son Jesus Christ. In the assembly that's been brought together by the Holy Spirit, that peace reigns and we need to be in right relationship, you know, with it. So our stance towards the bishop is like our stance towards God the Father, right? Some of the early church fathers would, you know, emphasize, you know, that's what our relationship is meant to be. And so for that reason, you know, that we have the kind of, we have the hierarchy of the church, we have the, the authority, the, um, the, we have the, the structure and organization and, and the order, right? Where peace and righteousness are kissing one another, you know, as we've said. Now that's not license for any of the human beings involved in those structures to manipulate or abuse or, you know, take advantage of, of their position. You know, as soon as they do that, they're outside of that shalom and, and, and all bets are off, right? Like that's, that's not them doing that. But when it's right and it's ordered and it's filled with the glory of God and of the authority of God, then that is a true icon. Even in the relationships we have with one another, the way we address the bishop, the way the bishop addresses us, and then all of the other clergy and people in their right rightly ordered, you know, places, you know, we, we take great, um, pains in the Orthodox Church to look after things like order and even presvia, the, the kind of, uh, eldership of, as it were, between the different local churches, you know, you know, which church is first among equals and how to, you know, how do assemblies unfold? It's not random the way people even process into churches, what order bishops stand in and so forth. Uh, but all of that is meant to be this reflection of a, a shalom that is an ordered, you know, because the, 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 the peace of God is not chaos. You know, you mentioned earlier the kind of beatniks and, and hippies and so forth. I mean, that was a kind of peace married to chaos, um, and rebellion. And, and, and that's not what, you know, what we're talking about. Sometimes you need, you know, rebellion to bring it about and it's, it looks like it should look like revolution in terms of this world but it's not ultimately about casting off orders casting off you know uh structure or you know because all of that has a beauty to it and that's where the very best of even byzantium or whatever where you know authorities get mixed you know can be an icon of of the kingdom of god and that's where you know, it can, can be quite beautiful but you know, we shouldn't be afraid of, of words like authority or hierarchy or, or whatever, because they are truly an expression of shalom when they are functioning properly, right? No license here for accepting abuse. You know, in no way, shape or form should anybody ever suffer spiritual or clerical abuse in the church. But when it's working right and that love permeates, then it is an expression itself of shalom in the way that it's peaceful governance. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Enacting the Kingdom. For bonus episodes and content, or if you'd simply like to see this show continue, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom. See you next time.